0: Good morning, church. Good morning. It is good to see all of you. It is good to worship the Lord together. He is good. Amen. Amen. Yeah. It so cool to just get a chance to be able to share some things that uh, give us reason to rejoice. The, th- the thing about joy is that the world doesn't even know what it is. Like People without Christ literally have no concept of what Joy is because joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So as long as the Spirit is present in our lives, we could be going through difficult times, wonderful times, happy times, sad times. We could be rejoicing. We could be grieving. And through it all, we can be filled with joy. So God is good. I'm so thankful that we have so much to be joyful about. Let's open our word of prayer as we dive into the word and uh, see where the Lord takes us this morning. Father, we just wanna say thanks for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to just open your word and hear from you. Thank you that the Bible is not just an ancient book of ideas that someone had a long time ago, but it is living and active and and, uh, inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we pray now, Spirit, that you would just come in a way that is powerful in our experience and help us to see the truth of your word that it might actually transform our lives. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had to plan a road trip? Right? A lot of us have done this. I I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I, I was on a road trip, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago, something like that. My brother and I took a road trip, and the, the idea was we were going to to see my sister for her birthday. And she lives in Michigan and we decided to surprise her. And so we decided four or five months in advance that we were going to do this and we planned it and we figured it out. And I could not believe how much planning was involved in making this happen. It seemed like if you just um, say, man, I want to go to Michigan, you should be able to get there. I mean, not that many people want to go to Michigan, right? So it should be simple, but there was, there was we had to plan for hotels along the way. We had to book those in advance. We had to figure out what the costs were going to be. And since we were already going to be driving across the country, we decided we might as well visit major league ballparks along the way. And so we had to uh, put that into the plan. And that meant we had to figure out which teams were at home in the areas we were going to at the right times, how to get tickets and all of that kind of stuff. And so we had to do that. And we, we did everything we could think of and we planned Planned it all in advance, and then we took off on our trip, and of course, nothing goes the way you plan, right? And one of the things was, the whole idea was, we were surprising my sister for her birthday. And so, uh, her birthday happened months ago, but we're brothers, so we're not held to those kind of standards. But <laughs> anyways, so we... We, it's the night before we're going to meet her and surprise her in the morning. She doesn't know we're coming. We're going to surprise her in the morning. It's like 10 o'clock at night. We're finally pulling into this little town in Michigan where we're going to stay the night. And we realize we need a birthday cake we don't have a birthday cake. What are we going to do for a birthday cake? So we start looking for grocery stores, no grocery stores, nothing open, no place to find a birthday cake. I'm like calling people and saying, would you mind baking us a cake? No, they're hanging up on me. So we finally find a Cracker Barrel that is open and we needed to get dinner anyway. So we go to Cracker Barrel and we're eating dinner and we notice on the menu, it says uh, you can get a slice of chocolate cake for dessert. And so I, it's like 6 you know, 95 for a slice of chocolate cake. And so I say to the server, how much would it be to buy a whole cake? And, and he goes, "I, uh, we don't sell whole cakes. And I go, sure you do. <laughs> sure you do. Talk to your boss, see if there's a whole cake. And then put it on our tab, <laughs> and so he, he comes back, he goes, the boss said yes, so he brings us this cake in a box, and it's awesome, and then he brings us the bill, and we must have paid like 800 bucks for that <laughs> cake. So he's dividing up the 695 a slice, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's gonna be the most expensive cake in the history of the world, but we had to plan all this stuff, and even the stuff that we didn't plan, we had to figure out, and um, you can't just say something like, Man, I wanna be in Michigan and poof, you're there, right? You have to have a strategy if you're gonna do something like this. And the same is absolutely true for the Christian life. That we can't just sort of go, I really wanna change the world and then expect the world to change. We can't just go, I really, really want to grow in my Christian maturity and then expect to just wake up more mature the next morning. That's not how it happens. Listen, you go to bed tonight, you will wake up more old tomorrow morning, (laughs) but not necessarily more mature. And so, you know, it doesn't just happen because you want it to happen. And uh, it's important that we have a strategy. It's important that we have a plan. I mean, just think about this. We're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm not talking about the pandemic you think I'm talking about. Um, There's one pandemic that's sort of been the focus of everyone's attention. And while we've all been focusing our attention on the pandemic, um, another pandemic has happened that most of us didn't even notice. It's a pandemic of suicide. So far this year, an American has attempted suicide once every 11 seconds. Our current suicide rate right now ties the record for any year in American history with the 1930s during the Great Depression. Same number of suicides per 1,000 people, but when you think about it, the numbers today are much worse. I mean, we all understand what was happening in the 30s with the Great Depression, the stock market crash, everybody in poverty and all that was going on then, and people were committing suicide in record numbers. But at that time, they didn't have um, suicide hotlines. They didn't have 911. They didn't have um, the medications that we have now that can, can uh, you know, get uh, poison out of your system. They didn't have um, the uh, ability to put somebody on a ventilator. They didn't have uh, programs in schools that were designed to help kids deal with suicidal thoughts. They didn't have any of those kind of things, the counseling services, the, the mental health medications, all the things that we now take for granted today. They didn't have any of that stuff in the 30s. And our numbers of deaths from suicide are matching what they were in the 30s. For decades... Mental health professionals have advocated things like mental health screenings and counseling services and mental health medications. Um, Society in the last several decades made huge strides in the effort to sort of destigmatize alternative lifestyles to destigmatize mental health issues. Um, to to, uh, create a mainstream flow for groups that had always been outside of the mainstream before, marginalized groups, marginalized behaviors. All of that stuff has been addressed over the last several decades. And still there's an epidemic of depression, an epidemic of brokenheartedness, and the epidemic of suicide in our culture like we have never seen before. And all that is just a symptom of a society that is coming apart at the seams. And and I don't want to spend any more time sort of painting the bleak picture because we're all living in this. We're all somewhat aware of this. But can we just say this? Whatever the strategy has been, it's not working. And here we are. We are the 21st century church. We are living in Acts chapter 29. And we have been commanded to make disciples of all nations. We have been commanded to, um, to be his witnesses. And we've been given the strategy that will literally save lives both temporarily and eternally. We have a strategy that the scripture has given us. The question is, are we living out that strategy. And as we wind up our study in the book of Acts, it's been amazing to be able to just look through the book of Acts and see all the great ways that God was working in his church, all the ways that God was working through his church in the first century as the movement got started. But guys, the movement is supposed to still be going. And the question is, what are we doing with the strategy God has given us? Do we have a strategy? How do we get there from here? If we're supposed to be loving God, loving people, changing the world, how do we get there from here? Well, last week we introduced this concept of the uh, Greek word oikos, right? The oikos is that group of people that uh, you live your life surrounded by. They're the people that are in your closest circle, the people who you touch on a regular basis, the people who you have the most opportunity to have an impact on with your life, and the people who have an impact on you with their lives. That's what the Greeks called the oikos. And uh, to minister in your oikos, those eight to 15 people that we all have that are close to us. To minister in your oikos is simply to follow Jesus' plan, to follow Jesus' example of what it means to make disciples. But to make this strategy even more simple, I'm going to put it a different way this way this week. If you want to change the world, start where you are. We should just all memorize that statement. If you want to change the world, start where you are. We talked about this many of us us in our grace groups this week about how the concept of changing the world is such a gigantic concept that we all sort of look at it and shrug our shoulders and go, yeah, that's beyond me. So I just move on from that. Guys, we don't change the world by changing the world. We change the world by changing our world. And we talked about that at Link last week. If you weren't here for that last week, please go check it out on the website. But the idea of changing the world means that we have to start where we are. Now notice what I did not say. I did not say if you want to change the world, stay where you are. I've said if you want to change the world, start where you are. The idea of going is an essential part of the Great Commission. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, where it says in Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. If we were to translate that literally in English, it would probably read, therefore as you are going, make disciples of all nations. So we're all going, our lives are in motion, we're on a journey. You know, the, the great metaphor in scripture for the Christian life is a walk or a journey. Whether you're looking all the way back to Abraham and you're walking, watching his journey with God or you're watching the children of Israel leaving Egypt and going to the promised land, they're on a journey with God. Or whether you go all the way to the New Testament and you find Paul and he says, walk the worthy walk. He doesn't say, sit the worthy sit. Because the nature of the Christian life is that we're moving. And so he says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations. This idea is also prominent in the statement Jesus makes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that we've looked at so many times, right? He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. I don't know, but I think almost every time I quote that verse, I go, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth with four fingers. Maybe a better way to do it would be Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. But it's more like concentric circles. It's more like a pebble in a pond, right? When you toss that pebble in the pond and the circle's spread out, that's the strategy that God has in mind for how he can bring his love to people, how he can transform lives, how he can transform families, how he can be a source of hope, how he can be a source of joy, how he can be a source of peace in all of our lives. And so the idea of going is essential, essential in all of this. So, but don't lose sight of the balance here. On the one hand, if you want to change the world, start where you are, but even better, if you want to influence people for Christ, start where they are. Um, We are in California, if you didn't know that. Some of you are online watching and you're not in California, but uh, here in California, if you study the history of the California church, it's fascinating because you know when the season of the greatest church growth was in California? The 30s, 40s, and 50s. Anybody got a guess why? Yeah, depression. What happened in, say, Oklahoma and Texas and that area during that time? The Dust Bowl, right? Everybody came to California. Who were all these people who came to California in the 30s? Southern Baptists, basically. Southern Baptists, Southern Methodists, right? Right? They they were, they were. That was the Bible Belt of the day, and so if you wanted to grow a church in Southern California in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you know what you had to do? You had to get a building and hang out a sign that said First Baptist Church. If you could put the word Southern in it, all the better. And, and, and then there were people who already were committed to Christ, already committed to their faith, already committed to the idea of being, doing life in the church, and they were just looking for a place to call home as their church. And that's how church growth was done, and that's why there was massive church growth in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in this part of the country, is because people were moving from places where they had already known the Lord, and they needed a church. It doesn't take a genius to know Times have changed in California. It is no longer an effective strategy to hang a sign outside. In fact, you know, if you go to any sort of church growth, conference or anything, the first thing they'll tell you is take the denomination out of your name, don't put it on the sign, especially if the word Southern is in it. (laughs) It's literally the exact opposite kind of thinking. Um, And so if you were to just sort of hang a sign outside of a building and think that the people are going to come, that's like planning your trip to Michigan by a wagon train. It just doesn't make any sense to do it that way in this day and age. What's interesting is that's not the way Jesus ever told us to do it. The way Jesus told us to do it was to reach people and make disciples. So California in all of America, for that matter, is no longer populated by Christians. We have entered the post-Christian age of American history. I hope it's a blip on the calendar in the history books. But so far, it looks like a movement. We've entered a age in which we are in a post-Christian culture, certainly in California, if not nationwide. And in that sense, our cultural reality is more similar to that of the early church that we've been studying in the book of Acts than it's ever been in our lifetimes. So the book of Acts is incredibly relevant to us right now. So what can we learn from the book of Acts about the most effective strategy for reaching a lost world for Christ? Well, I already started with the first one. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Start where they are. Start where they are. In the first few chapters of Acts, where did the church gather for public worship? This is audience participation. And in, in Israel, Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, where, where were they gathering when they went to worship in public? The temple. the temple. The temple, exactly. They gathered in the temple in Jerusalem and in the synagogues locally right? And that's what they did because they were simply just um, extending their Jewish faith to include the Jewish Messiah. And so they were continuing to um, gather in the temple and continuing to gather in the synagogues. The the first people that they were reaching were all Jews. And so if you look at this, take your Bibles, you're going to open to the book of Acts um, in your New Testament right after the book of John, find Acts. And we're just going to look at a couple examples of this and then we'll settle in. Acts chapter two, verse 46, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Acts chapter three, verse one. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And that's where they met the beggar who was asking for money. And instead, they gave him healing. And that created this movement where thousands more were swept in to the body of Christ. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer the shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So, So where were they going? They were going where the people were, where the people were who obviously had some interest in knowing more about God. And so they were going to connect with people who were already open to that level of connection. And as the gospel began to spread to other regions, where did the apostles preach? In local synagogues. Right. Turn to Acts chapter nine, look at verse 20. We see this right after Paul gets saved and he starts wanting to minister, what does he do? Acts chapter nine, verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Paul was a rabbi and so he had this open opportunity to go into a synagogue which was full of people who already believed the Messiah was coming who were already interested in knowing the one true God. And he just simply started where they were and starting from the scriptures, he reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures with them to show them that this Jesus who had been crucified was in fact the Messiah. And when Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journeys, they always looked for a gathering of Jews. If the town was large enough to have a synagogue, they immediately went to the synagogue where they shared from the Old Testament and tried to show that Jesus was the Messiah. And if there were not enough Jews for there to be a synagogue in these towns, they would go outside the city gates on the Sabbath and look for people who had gathered to worship because there would be Jews smattered around these different cities. And there they would meet with them and starting from where they were, they would share the gospel with them. But where did they go to minister when they were in a pagan city? When they were in a city where there ain't no way there's a synagogue here? Where they were in a city where there were uh, temples built to false idols? What did they do when they went to places like Philippi and Rome and Athens and Ephesus? They went wherever the people were and they started where the people were. I think maybe the best example of this in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 17, and we're gonna camp there for a minute, so come on with me, go to Acts chapter 17, and we're gonna pick it up in verse 16 as Paul finds himself in Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, this is verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So it was a big enough city for there to be a synagogue, so he would go to the synagogue Verse 18, and also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Let's stop there for a second. There's this place in Athens today, if you go to visit the ruins of ancient Greece, you will find that there's a place called the Areopagus. At the Areopagus, it was sort of the Harvard University of Athens. It was the place where all the smartest people gathered. And of course, Greece is the, um, the birthplace of Greek philosophy, right? So these guys didn't know about uh, Abraham and Moses and Elijah. They knew about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, And that's who had influenced all of their thinking, all their religion was influenced by that, all their philosophy was influenced by that. That was their culture there. And so they had this place called the Areopagus and it's surrounded by all of these idols, right? All different idols made to all different gods with a little g. And they would worship these idols that they had made with their own hands. And you know what blows my mind? They invited Paul to come to their party. Isn't that cool? They they invited him to come to their party, just like they used to invite Jesus to go to the parties at the tax gatherer's house and the prostitute's house and all these places where Jesus would get a reputation because he was known for hanging out with those kind of people. And Paul comes to town and starts sharing in the synagogues, the word gets out that this guy's preaching some new thing. These philosophers come to him and go, hey, we've heard you have something interesting to say. We have this area where we go to and all the smartest guys gather there. Will you come and teach a class? They invite him. It just made me stop and think. Do lost people still invite us to their parties? (laughs) I mean, you, you've heard the phrase that sometimes you can be so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. I wonder how many of my former close friends would categorize me that way. To say, you know what? Hey, we're going to have this party, but it's, that's not Doug's thing. We don't want to invite him. Or do you actually get invited and and if you do get invited don't get in too big of a hurry to pat yourself on the back you might be getting invited because there hasn't been enough change in your life to make them uncomfortable yet right so so let's just think about that if you do get invited can they tell the difference of what's happening in your life or do you just go with the flow and nobody even notices that your life is changing Paul got invited to the Areopagus where all the philosophers hung out and discussed religion and philosophy. And they asked him to explain what he believed. This would be like a a Christian minister going to Harvard University and having the philosophy department chairman Invite him into the faculty lounge to hang out and explain all of his conservative Christian views. That's what Paul got invited to. Now, guys, if you see something like that happen, that's God waving a flag and going, hey, I'm at work here. And so he goes to the Areopagus and he notices as he's going that his spirit is troubled because he's surrounded by idols. And it breaks his heart to think how lost these people are. Now, if this had happened in the synagogue with a bunch of Jews, he would have started in the Old Testament and explained that Jesus is the Messiah. But these people were not familiar with the Old Testament. They were familiar with Epicurean philosophers. And So what did he do? He started quoting their philosophers. They didn't worship one true God They had no concept that even such an idea existed. They believed that, like all pagans, that um, there were multiple gods and the gods were found in nature. And So they made idols with their own hands to represent those gods and they worshipped those idols. So Paul started where they were. Pick it up in verse 22. We're still in chapter 17 of Acts. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. What an interesting way to start. Instead of starting by going, let me tell you why you're going to hell. (laughs) He starts with, I observe that you're very religious people. We have that in common. You know, I'm a Jewish rabbi. And so I, I really respect the fact that you guys are religious. He says, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people breath and all things. Let me stop there for a second. The basis of paganism is that nature is God. And so there's a wind God and a sun God and a river God and, a, and a, you know, a fertility God and all of that kind of stuff, right? It's all found in nature. And so where does he begin? He begins by talking about the God who created everything in nature. So he's saying something incredibly offensive in a way that is not at all offensive. Man, we need to learn that. Here's what he's saying. (laughs) You know your little gods, the ones you built, um, to represent all this nature? My big God made all that stuff. And, And he's just shifting the discussion, right? And they're fascinated and they're listening to him. And he goes on, verse 26, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Once again, what's he doing? He's addressing their mental model. Their thought is that each region has its set of gods. And so in their region, they worship this set of gods. Over there in Rome, they worship this set of gods. And, and you know down in, in another area, they worship this set of gods. And he's saying the one God created from one man, all people, that he could have a relationship with all of them. So he's breaking down that barrier. He's saying, don't be offended because I'm talking about my God from my region. This is not a regional God. Verse 28. Um, uh, Verse 27. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said. He's got to quote their poets. For we also are his children. Being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone an image form the art uh, by the art uh, and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This isn't just me telling you what you have to do. This is God saying to all of us, we're in the same boat. We all need to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, though a man whom, uh, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear of you. We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Acts is full of examples like this. Philip goes to Samaria, breaks down the cultural barriers that keep him from interacting with these people and shares Christ with the Samaritans on their turf. Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, right into the home of a Roman soldier and shares the gospel and the Gentile church is born. Paul goes all the way to Rome because he's not willing to accept a pardon because he wants to stand before Caesar and he wants to share the gospel with the emperor of Rome. Friends, if you're a Christian, your life is meant to be lived on a mission, as you are going, your oikos may change from time to time because you go from one place to another, your oikos is going to shift. But wherever you find yourself, you need to find some common ground with some people you can connect with. People who don't know Jesus. So you can give them the amazing gift that God has given to you. You may have to cross an ocean probably you just have to cross the street. You might have to learn a new language. Or you might just need to open your mouth and speak the language you already know. You might need to spend some money. You might need to invest some time. You might need to make some effort. You might need to get uncomfortable. You might even have to put yourself in real danger. But if you want to be used... By God, as a world changer, you're going to have to build an oikos wherever you go, and then you're going to have to intentionally touch the lives of people. And that leads me to the other biblical principle I want to drive home before we close the book on Acts for now. Good deeds lead to goodwill, which leads to the sharing of the good news. Good deeds lead to goodwill, which leads to good news. Go back to Acts chapter 2. And we'll just sort of finish off this series where we began it, in Acts chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 45. We've all already seen in these last few verses, they've, thousands have come to know Christ. They're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Everyone keeps feeling a sense of awe, verse 43. Um, verse 44, they, uh, they had everything in common, they're of one mind. Verse 45 is where we're going to pick it up. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think many of us have read verse 45 countless times and not really noticed what it says. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with who? Does it say with each other? With all. Right in this other rest of the context, it talks about the way they shared with each other. It talks about them being of one mind. It talks about them taking their meals together. But here it says that they actually... Um, divested themselves of their own wealth in order to meet the needs of anyone around them who had a need. See, we have got this backwards in the church. We have somehow thought that if we share the good news, that people will come. But guys, there's a pathway that God often builds to prepare people's heart to receive the good news and often it begins with good deeds. That's why you see Jesus meeting needs. Oh my gosh, these people are hungry. Let's give them some bread and some fish. And after they've all seen the miracle and eaten, he stands up and says, by the way, I am the bread of life. It's why when he sees a blind man, he stops And he heals him so that he can see again and then shares the love of Christ. It's why when he sees lepers, he heals them. When everybody else is saying, get away, get away, get away, Jesus says, come to me, come to me, come to me. He touches lepers. And instead of lepers rubbing off on on him, he rubs off on them. And then he talks to them about what it's like to follow him. And it goes on and on and on and on. The, the early church started off right off the bat meeting needs. They did good deeds. And the good deeds created good will. Look what it says. They found favor with all the people. Guys, it's, it's hard to look down on and hate and, and reject those who are caring for you. People who actually love you. People who are actually trying to make your life better. And so they started with good deeds. That led to goodwill. And then they had the opportunity to share the good news. After they would do this, a guy gets healed. Good deed. People gather and they say, Wow, this is something special. What must we do to be saved? Oh, I'm glad you asked. And they share the gospel. We need a strategy, guys. You realize what an amazing statement it is when it says, and they found favor with all the people? We I mean, just, just hold that up against the way the average unbelieving person thinks of the Christian church today. And as a result, they shared the good news. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yes, the church was countercultural. They didn't have to become like their culture. In fact, they stood out because they were so loving in a culture that was so selfish. Yes, it probably felt like they were swimming upstream against a strong tide half the time because they were so different than the people that they were around. So what did they do? Good deeds resulting in goodwill leading to the sharing of the good news. That's the biblical strategy we've been looking for. Start where you are, start where they are, and start by meeting needs. Now, I've gone too long, but I'm going to give you a couple of practical points because this is my last chance to talk to you about acts in this series. Practical point number one, start where you are. We talked last week about your oikos. We said there's 8 to 15 people in your life that you have already connection with. Here's my advice. You can take it or leave it. You can walk out of here and go to lunch and forget I said any of this. Or you can actually have your life changed by applying the word of God. It's up to you. Here you go. Get home and write down the names of those 8 to 15 people. Put them on a 3x5 card. Put them on your iPad. Put them on your phone. Put them wherever it is that you're going to remember them write down the people, ask God, Lord, who's in my oikos? Who are the people I can most readily minister to? They're going to be the people in your household. They might be the people you work with. They might be your best friend or, or someone that you're dating. They, they could be a classmate or a, a coworker, whoever is in your oikos. Don't make a gigantic list the, the point is eight to 15, eight to 15 people write their names down. And here's what you do you actually make a commitment to pray for those eight to 15 people every single day. Just start your day praying for the people in your oikos. And one last thing, ask God to show you ways to touch their lives. Start your day with your oikos in mind. Lord, how can I touch the people who are already close to me? Second thing, get to work on meeting needs. If you're in a grace group this week, uh, your grace group leader is going to receive from me a list of opportunities for your grace group or the people in your grace group to volunteer to actually meet needs in our community that desperately need to be met. And I'm going to just give you a, a you know, you make your choice. Decide as a group, hey, we could do this. We could all go down and volunteer and we could hand out food at Thanksgiving. Hey, we could do a collection for blankets for people who are cold at night. Hey, um, we could uh, help as uh, volunteers, as uh, tutors uh, for those who are struggling in the classroom. Hey, we can make phone calls to shut-ins, especially during a time like this where they're not even able to get out and we could reach out to people. There's gonna be a bunch of options for you And I'm going to just encourage you as a group, pick at least one and say, we're doing this. Or maybe you as an individual, pick one and say, we're doing this. Or maybe you've already got one in mind. Do it. The book of Acts. We looked at... The commission, we said that the church is about a mission, that it's a mission God is on and he's invited us to join him in it. We talked about body life, we said we all uniquely are the body of Christ, we're the people of God, that what he carries out in terms of his mission will be carried out through us. We talked about world-changing power, that this, this power that exists in the book of Acts and all the miracles and amazing things we see, same Holy Spirit lives in every believer today that's lived within them then. And then finally, this last series, Therefore Go, it's been our, God's way of calling us and saying, hey, get up off your pew and go make a difference in somebody's life. 28 chapters of amazing activity throughout the book of Acts. We're living chapter 29. We're the church. The torch has been passed to us What's our strategy for changing the world? What a privilege to be a part of what God is doing. Let me invite you to stand and let me pray for you. I wanna just ask you to take a second with your head bowed and your eyes closed, just, just take a deep breath. Think about what God has done for you. And I want to remind you that you are not a bucket to contain his love. You're a funnel through which his love is meant to flow. And now God, as we leave this place, touched. By a time of worshiping you, taught from your word and inspired to live differently because of all that you are and all that you've done, we dedicate ourselves to you and ask you, God, fill us with your spirit. Give us your heart for people. Help us to see the world as you see the world and help us to live our lives empowered by your spirit and on your mission for we ask it in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to be with you. Have a great week.